0: Tom Yulsman
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth for Tuesday, February 8th, 2011.
0: Coming up, we'll learn how Ball Aerospace created the Kepler satellite that just identified more than 1,200 planets. And we'll learn how the Front Range is bracing for a warmer climate.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: Can you visualize and intrinsically understand the size of the number 5? How about the numbers 10, 100 or 1000? At some point a person's feel for numbers goes from being specific and concrete to being very abstract. We know a trillion is larger than a billion, whether it's dollars in a budget or a distance to a star, but can you actually grasp the idea of a billion stars or the time of a billion years? Could this feel for numbers have an impact on people's understanding of concepts like evolution or the possibility of life in the universe? Our understanding of numbers may have an intimate connection to our language, even limiting the concept of what many of us would consider small numbers like four or six. In a recent study led by Elizabeth Spapin of the University of Chicago, research on deaf people in Nicaragua who never learned formal sign language showed that people who communicate using self-developed gestures called home signs were unable to comprehend the value of numbers greater than 3. That's because they had not learned a language containing symbols used for counting. In such cases, the subjects may not even be able to comprehend the concept that 8 is larger than 7 and that the difference is one. Similar research has found that two groups studied in the Amazon that don't have words for numbers greater than five are unable to match two rows of checkers containing more than five items. The findings of the Nicaraguan study were published in the current issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
1: In the solar system, size is everything. The dynamics of the solar system is dominated by the sun, which has the most mass and therefore the most gravity. Among the planets, Jupiter is king, and may have thrown its weight around to toss aside its smaller brethren during the early formation of the solar system. But now, researchers at the Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office have an explanation why Mars is as small as it is. Most models of the formation of the solar system predict that Mars should be 5 to 10 times larger than it actually is, Researchers David Mitten and Hal Levison have created new sim- simulations that explain the small size of Mars by including the effect of what is known as planetesimal-driven migration. In this model, the positions of the planets started off at distances from the Sun that are different from and more compact than we see today. The planets migrated outwards in the early life of the solar system, and Mars' growth got stalled at its current size because it migrated away from the planet-building materials that were in a ring or disk around the sun in those early years. During this migration, Mars also gravitationally influenced small rocks and debris in its neighborhood. The researchers nicknamed those objects Marstinis. But in their simulations, Mars had a weak hold on these Marstinis. Their orbits became unstable and were flung into the inner solar system during a period called Late Heavy Bombardment. You might say the Marstinis were shaken and stirred. The scars of this bombardment are still apparent on the surface of the Moon as a large number of craters that were all formed around the same period of time, about 4.1 to 3.8 billion years ago.
0: Café Scientifique is a worldwide phenomenon where people gather in informal settings, usually at bars or restaurants, to have conversations with renowned scientists about current science topics. Colorado boasts at least four cafe size, located in Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, and Colorado Springs. Tonight, February 8th, you have a choice of two cafe size. In Denver, the topic is Methane Seas and Salty Geysers, the Marvelous Moons of Saturn, presented by John Spencer from Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office. Dr. Spencer is a science team member of the Cassini mission orbiting Saturn. Besides having that spectacular set of rings, the giant planet Saturn has quite the rogue's gallery of moons orbiting around it, from the giant moon Titan, which is larger than Pluto and Mercury, to smaller moons that resemble a walnut, a sponge, and the Death Star. Discussion starts at 6.30 tonight in the Mercantile Room at the Wincoop Brewing Company in Denver. It's on the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Lodo. For more information about the topic and the event, go to CaféSciColorado.org. Or, also tonight, you can go to the Café Psy in Boulder for the topic, The World's Fastest Man on Artificial Legs, the Intriguing Biomechanics and Physiology of Oscar Pistorius. The discussion will be led by Dr. Roger Cram from CU Boulder's Department of Integrative Physiology. That Café Psy will be in the Coach's Corner at the Millennium Hotel, 1345 28th Street in Boulder. Refreshments begin at 5.30 p.m. and the discussion starts at 6. Their website is
1: Right now, in the thick of this crushing snowstorm in Boulder, it might be hard to fathom a future that'll be much warmer, on average, and possibly drier than it is now in Colorado, and the Front Range in particular. Many uncertainties remain about climate change for sure, such as whether it'll get drier or wetter as the climate warms. But what is certain scientists say is that temperatures will rise. So Boulder's been on the forefront of cities, particularly in the west, that are preparing contingency plans for a future in which water demands could far outpace supply. Joel Smith is one of those people involved in helping the city adapt to climate change, in particular by smartly managing its water supply. Mr. Smith is the principal of Stratus Consulting in Boulder. As a lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, he shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore and the IPCC. He's been analyzing climate change impacts and adaptation issues for over 20 years and he's in the studio now to discuss some of the challenges and accomplishments that Mark Boulder's risk management efforts. So Joel, welcome to the show. Thank
2: you. Pleasure to be here.
1: And as I mentioned before, it might be a little hard for folks to fathom, but <laughs> as many know, I mean we we have been in the midst of a drought and maybe lay out some of the challenges that Boulder is facing now in terms of water supply.
2: Well, I think in in the short term, I, from what I understand, there the water supply is looking is looking fine. This is a pretty wet year in the mountains, although down here it's been it's been dry. And but at least lately we've been getting more more precipitation. The challenge, though, is really in the long term. There are a lot of things going on. There's population growth going on. In fact, the state just forecast that there will be water shortages unless some water is shifting around. Uh, there's tech, there's uh, economic growth, which can which can lead to more water demand. Uh, and then there's climate change. And as you said, you know, it will get warmer. We know that. Uh, we're not quite sure about wetter or drier in the Front Range. However, on the, other, on the west slope, the Colorado River, is. the models are suggesting that it will get drier. And in fact, uh, in the southwest in the last 30 years or so, precipitation has actually dropped. And so there is some suggestion that we may be heading for drier conditions. I can get into details. It's not clear that's going to happen, but it could well be drier in the West Slope. Front range, we're not so sure. Boulder gets about a third of its water supply from the West Slope. So that could be less mean less water coming over you know, through the tunnels that are cut through the mountains and more reliance on water from the front range.
1: And about how much less and how critical... Is this, or or could it be, and should it be Well,
2: that's good. We don't know exactly how much less. That's one of the things that's hard to predict. And climate change, the best we know is is sort of, we say, the direction of change, that temperatures will rise, certain things will change. Even where it's going to get, we think it'll get drier, we're not sure how much less. And that's part of the challenge of adapting, Uh, you know, is preparing for a wide range of possibilities. We can't give a number and say it will be, you know, say 10% drier in 2050. We don't know that so part of the challenge for water managers and others is saying how do we how do we prepare systems prepare people in a way that will enable us to adapt given a wide range of possibilities
1: and it looks pretty much like a given that population is only on the rise mm-hmm. i mean in the west in colorado mm-hmm. one of the fastest growth rates so mm-hmm. assuming that's a given what are what are the juggling factors well particularly qu- if you're, you know, water management official in Boulder.
2: I mean, one of the big issues I think it's beyond Boulder as almost statewide and even region wide is, is who gets the water. Right now in the West most water is used by agriculture. It's around eighty percent or so. It's a shrinking share as population grows. And there's a question of is and what we're seeing is water use being shifted from agriculture more to urban uses. There's also in stream flow requirements essentially to protect the environment, species and the like, and mm-hmm. I don't think we want to violate those.
1: And just to find that a bit more, the in-stream flows?
2: So in-stream flows would be a minimum flow, for example, in summer to preserve sp- fish species, or sometimes in winter too, but to make sure that there's enough water that fish can survive. Uh, that's, that's one of the, and some of these are protected by the Endangered Species Act, So They're talking about federal law kicking in. So there's a lot of things that water managers have to juggle in terms of changing demands and then climate change thrown on top of it.
1: And some of it is abstract, some of it is very concrete mm-hmm. and, and immediate. What are some of the steps over the last couple of years, particularly in the course of your working on this mm-hmm. study with the Boulder um, the Boulder Creek for Boulder, what are some of the key steps that the city has taken and, and surrounding cities?
2: Well, one of the things is just to get an understanding of what may be at risk. So we did a study, we got a grant from NOAA, the, the federal government agency, to work with the city of Boulder in studying water supply. And we looked at a range of, of scenarios. And what we found was that, You know, it might get wetter in Boulder. It might not change much, in which case Boulder basically does okay. In fact, one of the things we know for sure is that higher temperatures will melt snowpack earlier. That means runoff comes early in the year. Right now, peak runoff tends to be in late June. It might Mm -hmm. shift as much as a month earlier. Boulder, because of the complicated water rights, Actually, can benefit from that. They can pull water out earlier. Does it has
1: more flexibility, or what?
2: Well, it's just what it's enabled. Uh, what it's allowed when it's allowed to pull water out of the stream. Basically, water that comes before the farmers need it uh, in the spring, Boulder can take and fill its reservoirs. Downstream communities may not have this option. By the way. But one of the risks is that it could get drier in the front range in which case uh, Boulder would not have water to meet its so-called reliability criteria it says that you know we're going to have so much water that you can water your lawns uh, so much or water your trees or obviously have enough water for inside uses there might be if it gets drier you know we might have more frequent cutoffs in water use and that would be something that we'd have to to deal with and so Boulder is considering you know they're looking at first what might climate change mean you know, in terms of setting drought criteria, in terms of looking at uh, making infrastructure investments and that kind of thing. As I understand you mean it, for now, new
1: reservoirs or we well, some even pipelines.
2: Pipelines sometimes between reservoirs. They're looking at one that might give them more flexibility in moving water around during the winter and spring. And that one of the things we preach is flexibility. You want you want an ability to manage your system, to use it as many different ways as possible. And That's times it.
1: are not exactly flush economically for times any city, Boulder included. So are we talking huge investments if we're gonna to need to really mitigate
2: for the possibly. Future? I mean this is these are some of the trade offs we're gonna to have to make. I mean, one is conservation, which is gonna be a lot less expensive. Uh, if we're talking about new infrastructure, reservoirs and all that, yes, that starts to get very expensive. It also has environmental consequences. So these are some of the difficult tradeoffs that I think decision makers and we, the public, have to make, too.
1: So it's this oft-quoted Mark Twain statement. What did he say? Whiskey's for drinking, waters for fighting. That's right. I mean, maybe it's been over-predicted and yeah. that there will be huge water wars in the West. Do you think that we're heading towards something well, kind of that? Well, I think maybe? there's going
2: to be increased tension on this. And I think that we're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, uh, making tougher decisions about uh, who may get the water, how reliably they may get, it, and who may not have it as much as they'd like.
1: So we just have a bit more time. Something for the listeners, for all of us mm-hmm. who are water consumers, both businesses mm-hmm. and homes, what, what's the takeaway message here?
2: Well, I think as anything, I think as, as consumers we should be responsible. We should always try to, particularly if, if we're putting in lawns or, or, or vegetation, you know, you plant xeriscape or uh, drought-tolerant species, use water wisely. You know, check leaky pipes and faucets and that kind of thing. But I think we we should always be responsible consumers. You know, we're there are we've seen droughts before. We may see more in the future. And the less we consume, the less pressure we put on the environment.
1: Well, thanks so much for coming to the show, Joel. That was Joel Mm -hmm. Smith, principal of Stratus Consulting in Boulder.
0: In the cosmos of science fiction writers, spacefaring aliens zing across the universe, stopping along the way to visit our planet, often with malignant intent. In the real cosmos that we live in, however, things have been much more boring, biologically speaking, that is. There is only one spot where life is actually known to exist Earth, of course. But are we really all there is, or does life, even if only simple microbial life, thrive elsewhere in the cosmos? To answer that question, it would help to know how common habitable planets are in the cosmic scheme of things. Hundreds of planets have been found using ground-based telescopes, but most are large Jupiter-sized planets orbiting close to their parent stars, resulting in incredibly hot surface temperatures. Small rocky planets in more temperate op- orbits around sun-like stars would be much more favorable for the development of life. Now, NASA's Kepler mission, a satellite designed to detect planets in our galactic neighborhood, has has discovered its first Earth-sized planet candidates, as well as its first planet candidates in what's known as the habitable zone. This is the region around a star where liquid water, considered essential for the existence of life, could exist on a planet's surface. Five of the potential planets are roughly the size of Earth and orbit in the habitable zone of smaller, cooler stars than our own sun. While aliens zipping from galaxy to galaxy may well remain the stuff of science fiction, the new findings from Kepler at least hold out the prospect that simple forms of life could exist elsewhere in the cosmos and might even be common. With us now to discuss the new developments is John Trelch, the Kepler mission program manager for Ball Aerospace. Ball, based right here in Boulder, built one of the key instruments for the mission, as well as the spacecraft itself. Welcome to the How on Earth, John. Good morning. So I want to get into the specifics of the role that you and your fellow engineers at Ball have played in the Kepler mission. Uh, But first, tell us a little bit more about the recent findings. What did Kepler discover, and why is it significant?
3: So uh, Kepler announced last week that we had found 1,200 planet candidates. And I say planet candidates because we've been very careful not to claim we have a planet until we really have all the scientific evidence necessary to confirm it's a planet uh, one of the bounties of Kepler was before launch, they thought that we'd be able to confirm these quickly. We found so many planets that it's taken quite some time to, to confirm them, and now we're asking all the astronomers in the, in the world to help us confirm them because there's just so many that we found.
0: Well, that's an amazing bounty. Were you surprised by just how many that uh, Kepler has been finding?
3: Absolutely. I have a fourth grader and a sixth grader, and I asked them, well, what are you excited about with this, uh, this release? And one of them said, how many planets and how fast we found them. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought we might find you know, a few a year, or they might dribble in, or we might not find any. But to suddenly be faced with, with planets across our entire field of view was really stunning. So let's take a step back
0: for a minute and and maybe get into a little bit of context. Why is it important to search for planets in general and Earth-like planets in the habitable zone of stars? Uh, you know, couldn't life exist just in a, in a whole variety of different environments, including you know really hot ones?
3: You know, I think we're self-centered. We we tend to think in terms of what we know, and we know about Earth-based biology. We know about water-based systems, carbon-based systems. So we could go off and look for something more exotic, but I think it's easier to go look for something you know well.
0: Hmm. So how does Kepler actually look for planets?
3: Kepler uses a technique called a transit technique. And uh, think about uh, something passing in front of a light. It makes the light go slightly dimmer, and as it passes behind it, uh, the light gets brighter again. So we just simply monitor 150,000 stars. I said simply, that's kind of a crazy word. Uh, but we're looking at 150,000 stars simultaneously, looking for them to get dim and bright again. And we measure how long they're dim, how deep the dimming is, and what the periodicity is of the dimming. And with that, we can figure out the orbits of the planets.
0: Now, Kepler isn't the first um, uh, you know, sort of experiment to do this How long have have scientists been using this technique to search for planets and what has it resulted in?
3: Transit hunting is, uh, planet hunting is actually fairly new. Uh, Typically uh, all the planets have been found with what's called radial velocity, which is measuring the wobble of a planet or a star as the planet goes around it. And that's good for big planets, but it doesn't work for smaller planets. Transit photometry has really just taken off in the last five years and Kepler is the premier instrument for doing that.
0: So, tell us a little bit about Ball's role in this mission and what, uh, what instrument did Ball build uh, uh, for, for detecting planets?
3: So, Ball has been the, the prime contract for this, uh, this entire mission. Uh, we teamed with the scientists at NASA Ames oh, 12, 13 years ago to, to build it. Um, Ball built the spacecraft, as you said, but we also built the photometer, which is the largest Schmidt telescope that's ever been put into orbit. It contains a very large optic, because we need to be able to look at a very large field of view. You can't look at 150,000 stars with a small telescope, you need a very big telescope. Um, and it has a camera in it that's got 95 megapixels. So it's the most amazing camera that's ever been put into space. It's. Uh, It's about one and a half cubic feet and costs thirty-eight million dollars. Has twenty-two thousand parts in it. So it's a very sophisticated camera that couples with this large telescope to look at this big field of view. There are over three and a half million objects in our field of view of which we're interested in these hundred and fifty thousand. So what was the biggest engineering challenge in, in putting this thing together? I think building the camera. I mean, there were challenges across the board. Anytime you get people to, to go out on an, an endeavor like this and build something this complicated that's never been done, you're always going to have challenges. But the camera was really the most sophisticated. There's large temperature changes on it. It's, it's uh, very dense, uh, very exacting performance requirements. You know, it took, for the whole mission, it took over 1,000 people here in Boulder County to build it, over a million hours of labor. So uh, it really is a very large mission Uh, in terms of building the hardware and getting it into space.
0: So I, I know that you guys do an enormous amount of testing before you launch such an expensive satellite into space and you try to simulate what the conditions
3: would be. Tell us a little bit about that. Well... You really want to make sure it works. <laughs> yeah. So you start out uh, with very exacting requirements. You build it, you, you test it as you build it in little pieces. But as you get towards the end, you really want to make sure you can survive the rocket launch. You know, think about a 21-story bomb blasting a very sophisticated instrument into space. There's a lot of vibrations, a lot of uh, shaking, that kind of thing. You really want to test. So we test that in the laboratory here to make sure it'll stay together. And
0: as I as I understand, there, there's 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 facilities there where you can actually you know, freeze the satellite down to temperature and recreate the you know, conditions. You know, what's, how do you do that? <laughs>
3: we have a very, very large vacuum chamber that'll hold the entire instrument. We uh, suck all the air out of it so we have the vacuum of space. And then we can control the temperature because what's facing the sun is very hot and what's on the other side is cold. So we use that equipment to, to simulate the space environment. So, you know, one of the, you know, kind of back to the science here, one of the, the
0: goals is to determine, you know, just how common uh, Earth-like planets and habitable zones might be. You know, what kind of statistics are scientists going to need in order to actually make a statement that, you know, hey, it seems like they're, they're pretty common?
3: I think we found, we found a lot of planets, uh, like, well, I think it's on the order of 11 now. We've got the 1,200 candidates. Um, I think 80% of those candidates will be confirmed. So I think we're gonna have the statistics about, uh, about the planets. So really
0: quickly, because uh, we only have a few, oh, uh, well, 30 seconds left, what comes after Kepler?
3: Kepler's really designed to tell people where to look. So the astronomers now are taking the biggest uh, telescopes on Earth. They're going out and doing spectra of these planets, trying to figure out what the chemical composition is. They can actually look at the atmosphere, figure out temperatures. It's really amazing once people know where to look. When you're faced with billions of stars and not knowing where to look, you really need a roadmap, and Kepler gives them that roadmap.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us here on How on Earth. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: For this edition of How on Earth, our show is produced with help from our co-host Joel Parker and our intern Ted Burnham, Tim Morton, water theme music, Tom Wassinger produced it, additional music by Felakuti and Lights Out Asia.
0: Our website is howonearth.org. That's howonearthradio, no spaces, dot o-r-g. We're also on Facebook. Just search for How on Earth Radio. Questions or comments, call the How on Earth comment line. Um, uh, That's 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Tom Yulsman,
1: And I'm Susan Moran.